This is an ABC podcast. If you're feeling a little restless lately, a little twitchy, then don't worry, you're not alone and you're certainly not short of plausible excuses. Each of us these days has a universe of distractions on our phones. Those of us in comfortable middle-class circumstances are overwhelmed by all the choices that capitalism keeps serving up to us, choices that have to do with our job and our car and our food and our music and our TV consumption and all the rest of it. It's a wonder we manage to get out of bed in the morning and indeed some of us don't except to go to the toilet and have you seen the number of different varieties of toilet paper out there? Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. Restlessness seems like a very contemporary phenomenon, but in fact it's been the object of philosophical speculation for centuries. This week I'm very happy to be talking with the authors of a wonderful new book that explores this line of thinking. The book's titled Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment, and it draws on the insights of four French philosophers over a 300-year time span from the 16th to the 19th centuries. Michel de Montaigne, Blaise Pascal, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Alexis de Tocqueville were all acute observers of the modern human condition and they were fascinated with the question of what constitutes happiness and why we can't ever seem to manage to nail it once and for all. So my guests this week are Jenna Story and Benjamin Story. They're a husband and wife academic team who work in politics and international affairs at Furman University in South Carolina. Their book, Why We Are Restless, speaks to the human condition in general, but it's also shaped by the particular experience of living in the 21st century United States of America. We see restlessness most powerfully at work in the lives of our students. Um, We're both uh, college professors, and so we spend a lot of time with the 18 to 22 year old set. And I think we see in them restlessness in a particularly intense form. We first noticed it there, but then after thinking about it, we saw it in in the rest of the American world as well, including in our own lives. Um, The way I would characterize the the kind of restlessness that plagues our students is as a kind of frenetic activity. They're full of activity, and yet they're devoid of purpose. So the typical student, if we think about a kind of portrait of this student, it would be somebody that has really done everything that uh, our college has asked them to do, has really met every mark, has, has taken advantage of all the study abroads and all the internships that you can engage in, has been active in social life, founding clubs, has taken a great diversity of classes and done really well in them, and yet does not know what to do with their lives. And so Ben and I really started to shape this book when we started to think about how we could help these students who we often found in, say, October of their senior year in our offices, um, people who should be like launching very powerfully into the future, dissolving into puddles on our office floor. And they, they just didn't know what to do with themselves. They didn't know how to ask the question of what would make a meaningful life and I think the problem is that we don't know how to choose. So whatever array of choices confront us, we don't really know how to distinguish among them. And we started to see this as a, as a problem or even a failure of the kind of education we're offering our students, where we almost pressure them to explore all the options, but we don't give them the intellectual training to choose among them. We're going to be talking about how restlessness among the citizenry can affect the political order. But I'm also interested in the opposite trajectory. And this is just a little side question, but it's 
If we look at the ways that restlessness at the top can infect the body politic, we've just had four years of a, a US president whose salient character trait seems to be attention deficit. And it's been so interesting to see the way that his style of governance and public behaviour was all about distraction. He was a, a master of the art. And I wonder if you think that people are now more restless, more jumpy and dissatisfied than they were four years ago. I think you're right that restlessness can be exacerbated by these kinds of outside forces. And I'd, I'd think about that both in terms of the political, as you're saying, but also more broadly than the political. That is, there are lots of forces in a capitalist society that know that we're restless and encourage us to be more so, right? Because if somebody's content and settled into themselves, well, it's not easy to sell that person very much. But whereas if somebody is uh, flitting around from thing to thing, the uh, maybe they will uh, maybe they'll light on your thing and buy it. We live in an economy in which lots of people want to get just a little bit of our attention. But as we give all these little bits of our attention away, we, we ultimately find there's, there's not much left for ourselves. Well, let's turn to your book, which draws on a tradition of French writers who, as you say, made the restlessness of the human soul their, their special object of study. What is it about the French Enlightenment philosophical tradition, uh, if, if indeed there is something about that tradition, that made Montaigne and Pascal and Rousseau and Tocqueville such acute diagnosticians of this particular quirk of human nature? I think the the reason that the French seem to us to have an extraordinary level and distinctive level of psychological acuteness is in part because of the figure who stands at the head of this tradition, who is Michel de Montaigne. And Michel de Montaigne, a 16th century writer, wrote three volumes of semi-autobiographical essays. Montaigne is an extraordinarily acute observer of the human soul. He writes uh, almost entirely about himself, and he writes about all the particular details of his life. So he'll tell you uh, things that might seem irrelevant in other kinds of authors. He'll tell you that he likes to rub his teeth with a mac napkin after dinner. He'll tell you that he he likes uh, that he doesn't particularly like melons. And so Montaigne watches himself very closely. He says he tastes himself. He rolls around in himself, and that capacity for close psychological self-study really formed generations of French readers. So Montaigne didn't just reach a reading public, he formed a reading public. The essays were a standard touch point for, for hundreds of years of readers in France. And so when other writers wanted to converse with Montaigne, when they wanted to engage with him, when they wanted to draw on his work or contest it, and they wanted to do so to the same audience, well, they had to face an audience whose tastes had been shaped by Montaigne. That might be one of the reasons for this particular character of the of the French tradition. Yeah, I'd say all of these authors have the uncanny ability to kind of creep inside of your head and see things that you didn't know were there. And uh, perhaps we see this um, most dramatically in Tocqueville because he visited America in the 1830s and was able to kind of foresee the trajectory of American life in a way that makes us think that he, he knows us. I'm reminded of um, Samuel Johnson's observation that nothing concentrates the mind quite so well as the realisation of one's own imminent death. And learning how to die is very much the focus of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. 
Do we see in the French Enlightenment tradition perhaps a, a, a refinement or even a repudiation of that ideal where the goal of philosophy becomes more learning how to live? I think that's, I think that's exactly right, David. And I think we see this, this turn sort of executed in a particular chapter of Montaigne that has the title of that ancient approach to these things, which is that to philosophize is to learn to die. And in that chapter, Montaigne does something really interesting. He, he begins with this kind of stoical approach to one's, one's own mortality, as if one has to sort of stare down death um, in order to make something out of oneself. And then he sort of relaxes. And the most famous line in the chapter is this beautiful remark in which he says, I want death to find me planting my cabbages, but nonchalant about it and still more about my unfinished garden. And so Montaigne says, my attitude towards death is an attitude of nonchalance, that death is really not that big a deal. And because he's able to say that death is really not that big a deal, he's able to turn his attention in the way that you're describing toward the art of living. And so the essays are in themselves a sort of self-portrait of an artistic life that Montaigne has arranged for himself. So I think it's I think you're right to say that that there's a turn there from learning how to die to learning how to live that a a, a more um, relaxed attitude, a more nonchalant attitude toward death makes possible. And part of that nonchalant attitude is what you write about as imminent contentment. Can you talk about that? What exactly is imminent contentment? So Montaigne says that he circumscribes the course of his desires to the nearest and most contiguous good things. That is, he doesn't aim at anything too exalted, too lofty, or really anything that opens on the transcendent. So Montaigne, one could say he dabbles his way to happiness. He does lots of good and interesting things. He travels, but he doesn't travel with the exalted aspirations of a pilgrim or an explorer. He gardens, but he doesn't mind if his garden is imperfect. He has love affairs and eventually a family, but he doesn't really expect too much from either. And so Montaigne's idea is to enjoy all the good things of life without taking any of them too seriously. And this is what allows his kind of contentment to remain imminent. And so one could think of this in opposition to something like Dante's encounter with Beatrice. When Dante meets Beatrice, he sees a face that speaks to him of the divine. And when Montaigne encounters a beautiful face, he just sees a beautiful face. And he thinks this allows us to be a little bit more sane, a little bit happier in the confines of a merely natural life, you might call it. He takes a particularly dim view of the human imagination. What's his thinking there? If one thinks back to the Aristotelian proposition that man is both the best and the worst of the animals, one would say from an Aristotelian point of view that man is the best of the animals because he's the animal who reasons. And that capacity for understanding puts him at the peak of the natural order. From a Montaignan point of view, it is imagination, in fact, that distinguishes us from other living beings. And it's imagination that allows us to dream up all kinds of perversities and forms of, of, of craziness that would never occur to a simpler animal like a deer or a squirrel. And so if you put imagination in the place that reason occupies in a classical way of thinking, 
it looks like human beings actually should take guidance on how to live from animals who are simpler than they are. And this is one of the arguments that, that Montaigne makes because the human imagination constantly leads us astray. And so our distinguishing human factor is not the thing that we should live by, it's the thing we should be most wary of. Montaigne is particularly skeptical imagination of imagination because he thinks it leads us to imagine more exalted forms of life that we're not actually capable of achieving and therefore contorting ourselves to fit our ideals of saintliness or heroism and making ourselves kind of miserable in the process because we forget about living the life that we actually have. Well, let's jump forward uh, a century from Montaigne and a time when th this ideal of imminent contentment has really been taken up and has really begun to shape the aspirations of, of what you, you could call the emergent modern individual in the 17th century. But not everyone is convinced about this. And, and one of the skeptics is Blaise Pascal. He, he took a more melancholy view of human nature and, and of human restlessness. What was his take on that? Where Montaigne saw his project as circumscribing the human imagination, circumscribing human aspirations, teaching human beings, as the great literary critic uh, sent above put it, to let nature be enough for them without grace. Pascal thought this was really something inhuman. Pascal wrote one of our favorite lines to quote from him is that man transcends man. Man transcends man. So, what does Pascal mean by this? He says about man, he says, if he exalts himself, I humble him. If he humbles himself, I exalt him and continue to contradict him until he comprehends that he is an incomprehensible monster. So Pascal wants us to see that we are both greater and more miserable than Montaigne lets on. Montaigne wants us to see ourselves as beings who can become whole unto themselves. Pascal says, no, no, no. The human extremes are much further apart than that. And there's more sadness, but also more greatness in human life than Montaigne recognized. So I think Pascal would agree with someone like Socrates, who would point out in contradiction to Montaigne that human beings are always wanting more. They're always kind of reaching beyond themselves. And you actually cannot constrain that human desire or that human capacity for imagination, as we put it earlier. What you can do is direct it. And if you don't try to shape what it is that human beings are reaching for beyond the imminent, you're going to get some kind of pathology. Pascal is a member of the first sort of social class to be significantly influenced by the Montaignan view of happiness. And he looks around at his fellow uh, members of this sort of ascendant social class, and they're living what we would describe as nice lives. They, they, they're chatting and flirting in salon. They are, they're, they're going on hunting expeditions. They're gambling. They're enjoying themselves, uh, sometimes in a, in a nice sort of artistic style. And Pascal says that this all has a sort of very nice exterior. But when you look seriously at these people, you can see that they're haunted by a kind of hidden misery. And the point of his pensée is to bring that out to show us that we wouldn't love diversion if it actually made us happy. Why are we constantly trying to get our minds off of ourselves? Why are we always looking for the next thing? It must be some deep unsettledness in us that, as he says, prevents us from being able to sit alone in our rooms 
we're really happy we'd be able to do that. If we feel the need to constantly amuse ourselves, that's a mark that even in our enjoyments, we're not really content. To me, this gets at one of the greatest mysteries of contemporary life, which is why we incessantly complain about distraction, why we incessantly complain about things like our iPhones, and yet we can never put them down. I'm David Rutledge, speaking this week with Benjamin and Jenna Storey. They're co-authors of a new book titled Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. And of course, this conversation is taking place deep within the Philosopher's Zone. Okay, so now we're going to take another great leap forward in time, which is a, a shame, really, because we don't have time here to properly trace the uh, the elegant historical sweep of your book. You, you include a fascinating discussion of Jean-Jacques Rousseau that we're going to have to leave out here. Our listeners um, can seek it out for themselves, and I, I highly recommend that they do that. But if we turn to the 19th century and Alexis de Tocqueville, He is born an aristocrat, and as a young man in 1831, he travels to America, where he finds that realising the ideal of imminent contentment is not just a desire, but, as he sees it, a command. In what way? Yeah, so when Montaigne articulated uh, the life that was devoted to imminent contentment, it was was very countercultural. He was trying to solve a problem in his time, and he was going against the grain of his time. And, And so, as Ben said, it was a kind of artistic pursuit In the United States, um, everyone has become essentially bourgeois. This is a nation that J.S. Mill called all middle class. Now, that's in some ways an exaggeration, but it gets at, I think, what is the kind of American aspiration or what what we think should be the case. So in a society that's thoroughly bourgeois or all middle class, the pressure to seek imminent contentment is all around us. Those markers of imminent success, money, honor, power, become the markers for um, making it in our world. It's how we know that our our young people have grown up. So for us in our world, the rite of passage is that kind of, has become the kind of rat race for stuff and status. There's a pressure to do that simply to become an American adult. Uh, Ben and I talk in the book about how this actually makes us quite unhappy. We experience it as a kind of imperative, what we've called elsewhere the the hedonistic imperative. Our um, encouragement, our enticement to dabble in all the pleasures becomes almost like a command. Thou shalt try it all out. And once one has done that, if one has amassed enough of, of these kind of pursuits and hobbies, we're supposed to be happy. And so we're often puzzled when we reach this kind of state, when we we can fund ourselves and fund our endeavors, and we're not happy. We don't know what's wrong with us. Therefore, unhappiness has become not only just something we suffer, but also a kind of embarrassment. We take it as a kind of marker, almost of moral failure. When you're doing everything that should make you happy according to our society's standards, and you're still feeling kind of empty inside, we don't know what to do with it. And this is something that Tocqueville notices and, and writes about. And he also sees the pursuit of happiness in America as more than just a private concern. He sees it played out on the political stage. And again, this is something with very contemporary resonances. In what ways? What exactly is he describing here? 
Yes. So in a society that is um, defined, defines happiness, characterizes happiness by imminent contentment, you're going to get a certain structure to our um, social and political lives and, and certain uh, problems. So I think Tocqueville is drawing in part on what he observes in America, but you could see what he observes in America as a kind of result of the blueprint that was set out for modern democratic societies by thinkers like John Locke. So Locke, in creating the sort of blueprint for modern democratic societies, makes the pursuit of imminent goods, security, and property above all, these standards um, for political life. And what Tocqueville does is kind of explore the house that Locke made the blueprint for and see what goes on in such a house. Um, one of the things he sees is that the pursuit of those things doesn't really satisfy. And so we're perpetually discontent with the aims that our politics is um, reaching for. Now, you might also say in a liberal society, such like the one Locke set out, we're not supposed to be fully contented by our governments, right? We're supposed to have government tend to a certain order in public life, and we're supposed to have these kind of rich private lives where we can pursue different things, including religious belief and including uh, various kinds of investigations into transcendent goods. So in the liberalism, there's supposed to be a kind of um, duality to life of imminent concerns and transcendent concerns. There's supposed to be a separation between those two things, um, but they're supposed to work in tandem in some kind of way. Now, when as Tocqueville sees, even in the 1830s, Americans are particularly religious people compared to the French, but still he's, he's worried about the decline of religion in America. And of course we can see, you know, attendance numbers in churches and so forth declining since that time. And you might say that the architecture of separations in a liberal society, the kind of um, productive tension between imminent and transcendent concerns can no longer take place if people aren't really preoccupied and formed in any sense, even in their private lives, by these transcendent concerns. So we're left only with the imminent. And when that happens, the imminent takes on a kind of overwhelmingly important character, which is, we think, part of the reason why our political debates have become so uh, intense. People don't have the kind of rich, satisfying private lives um, that they might have had at one point to, to, to allow them to keep politics, you know, on a low boil. It, it sounds like you're describing a, a kind of transcendence in imminence, if you like, that imminence takes on some of the qualities in that sort of, that absolute imperative nature of it. It takes on some of the qualities, some of the worst qualities of the impulse to transcendence. Oh, yes. So yeah, that's interesting because I think what people like Locke were intending to do is kind of like lower the temperature, right? And get us to agree on some basic goods that um, are, you know, practically not controversial. But I think we see that when the transcendent, the transcendent concerns uh, collapse or, or dwindle, we don't even really believe in the existence of them. We don't know where to look to think about them. Then imminence becomes of, of super importance. So yes, it takes on something like the character that the transcendent once had. So it becomes, um, as we say in the book, as mad a master as transcendence once had been. So another way to put that, David, would be to, to say that we begin the book with Montaigne in the 16th century, who is dealing with the problem of religious fanaticism. And his whole art of living imminently is intended to respond to the problem of religious fanaticism. And what we find in our own time, and I think Tocqueville saw glimpses of this already in the 1830s, 
is that the transcendent is not necessarily the only source of fanaticism, that it can come back under other forms. So which of the four thinkers in your book do you find has the most persuasive account of, of what it means to be human and of, of how to live in a way that is less restless? Is any one philosopher more perceptive, do you think, or, or more correct than the others? Well, we try to do justice to all the thinkers that we, that we deal with in this book, and we really do love them all. But I would say that among them, Pascal has things to offer us that we most need to see right now. Pascal thinks that human beings are naturally unhappy. As you put it a little bit earlier, David, there's a gap between the kind of happiness we can't help ourselves from wanting and the kind of goods that we can actually give ourselves. And so Pascal suggests to us that unhappiness is normal. And I think that aspect of Pascal's thought could be really liberating for a lot of the young people we had in mind when we were writing this book, because a lot of them are very unhappy and they feel like it's not just unhappiness, it's a failure of normalcy. And that I think is really constricting for their attempts to live their lives. Uh, I agree with Ben, but I would also add that Tocqueville is a really important person to read, to understand the conventions under which we live. So what he is so good at is showing Americans anyway, that what they think is thinking for themselves is actually been kind of determined by this whole history of, of French thought, of modern thought, and is kind of baked into their social and political world. So he's really great at showing Americans the kind of cave, Socrates or Plato would put it, the cave in which they live. So is what we're left with then a kind of what you might call in theological terms, uh, uh, an accommodation to original sin, except with no redemption in sight, you know, that that restlessness and and happiness are just part of the human condition. And in, in the end, we're mistaken to view them as some sort of modern pathology. I think that's on one level uh, exactly right. Of course, uh, St. Augustine is maybe wrote the most famous sentence ever written on the subject of restlessness, in which he told us that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. But there is something we think distinctively characteristic of modern restlessness, which is the restlessness of the soul that is trying and failing to make itself happy imminently. And so it is the restlessness that we're really studying in this book is the restlessness that arises in souls that are trying to live some version of the Montaignan life we've described. I guess I would add something about the uh, role that we think liberal education should play in our world. I mean, this is the, the period of life that young people are engaging in when they're at our colleges and universities is really the, a very transformative time of life. It's a time when adults are kind of teaching them how to think about what they're going to do. And I think Ben and I have become ever more convinced that we are not doing a good job at this. This is a rather grim note to end on, but one of my students told me the other day that the second leading cause of death in the United States among people between the ages of 25 and 34 is suicide. And that is the, the most dramatic possible expression of people who are in despair and who think life is worth living, that they can't see the point of it. They don't have reason for hope. And I think our colleges and universities ought to wake up to that and strive very hard to do a better job at training our students how to think about purposes. 
Jenna Storey there with Benjamin Storey, both in the Department of Politics and International Affairs at Furman University in South Carolina. And they are the co-authors of Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. Publication details on the Philosopher's Zone website, so make sure you check that one out. Also on the website, you can find the streaming audio or download of this and all of our past programs. Or if you don't want to go looking for us, then just follow the program wherever you get those podcasts and it will just appear as if by magic every week. I'm David Rutledge. Tweet me anytime at David P Zone. And thanks for joining me this week. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.